Uh, what a treat for me to be in the hot seat whilst uh, we are joined by the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris Smith, of course, Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge, also known as the Naked Scientist. Dr Chris uh, joins us on air once more to answer a variety of science-related questions and we have got loads, loads and loads to get through. Good morning to you, Dr Chris. Good to have you with us. Well, great, great to have you with us as well. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> Morning. I'm very, very well indeed. It's only taken me about seven or eight years at Cape Talk to uh, to get to speak to you, but now I've got you and I'm not letting you go. Um, we're going to start, uh, Dr. Chris, with a question from Zuki, who raises a very, very good question here and one that I fight with my uh, other half about all the time, which is to do with colds. Zuki, a very good morning to you. Lovely to have you join us this morning. What's your question uh, for Dr. Chris? Morning, Shane. Good morning, Dr. Chris. Okay, so you often hear people say that they're sick or they've got a cold and it's because they went from, for example, a very hot room to the cold outside. Now, we know that colds are actually caused by pathogens. So what is the correlation between sudden changes in temperatures that you're exposed to and catching a cold, if there is any correlation? Hi, Zuki. Good question. The answer to this is that there is no source of a pathogen just because you get cold. You're quite right. When you get cold, getting cold is not the same as having a cold. And probably the confusion of the two is that when we get a viral infection or a bacterial infection and you become feverish, you feel cold and shivery. So people probably back in the day before we had a germ theory of disease and Pasteur told us that you catch bugs and bugs make you ill, people thought because you feel cold when you've got a cold, therefore the cold must cause the cold and the two must be connected. This isn't true, but there might be some kernel of truth in the sense that sort of weekly, when do these sorts of things tend to circulate best? In wintertime when it's cold. So you're more likely to run into someone who can give you a cold or a flu in winter. Why is that? Because we spend more time indoors in winter when it's cold outside. So we keep the windows and the doors closed and everyone huddles together inside. When do bugs tend to spread best when we're inside all close to each other? So that's probably part and parcel of, of why we've got this confusion in our mind. The other looser association is that if you do physiologically stress your body very much, if you end up very, very cold, then you're putting enormous metabolic stress on your body. Anything that stresses your body might suboptimally affect your functioning of your immune system. So it might render you more susceptible for a while to catching stuff. Although I think the evidence for that is quite weak. They have done studies in people who are exposed to extremes of temperature and there's not a really good evidence base for people being exposed to extremes of temperature and suddenly becoming highly susceptible to infection. But it's not going to be zero. There will be, there will be a small effect there. So I think that is the, the main basis of the answer, that the cold doesn't cause colds, but it can cause symptoms a bit like it. And colds tend to be around more when it's cold, which is probably why we made that connection in the first place. You've just solved an argument in my house um, and you've come down on the side of SJ there, Chris, which we always love. Um, and I have to just say, th Zuki, thank you for that question. Uh, my mum group, I've got a mum's WhatsApp group and, and all our kids are the same age, about three and a half, and they all do swimming lessons. And every time, you know, this time of year and the weather starts getting really grim here, we inevitably all start going, are you sending yours to swimming? Are you sending yours to swimming? Um, and so the, you, what I'm hearing you say, Chris, is that there's no reason not to send my daughter swimming just because it's cold outside. 
No. Um, obviously, if you're happy to send them to playgroup or you're happy to send them to school, then going swimming happy. is yeah, exactly is not a problem because there's no more germs there than anywhere else. It's other people that are the source of the germs. But then if we don't catch the colds and we don't catch the germs, you don't educate your immune system and it's payback time later. And what we've seen in many countries in the last year or so after the COVID pandemic and because of the effects of locking down and restricting social contact between people is we completely distorted the pattern of spread of germs where there was a very well-established seasonal trend to various things coming and going at different times of the year and this has completely in the last couple of years gone out the window and so we've seen flu at funny times of the year we've seen surges of other kinds of things that would normally be around in the spring and autumn they've all kind of become upset and we're slowly beginning to re-establish this pattern and that is because we stopped catching stuff for a while and we had hundreds of thousands of new babies being born in each country each year so we added to the pool of people who are susceptible to infection and we didn't allow them to catch things at what we'll dub the right time and as a result yeah. we've ended up with a big catch-up going on and also in the background us adults who've spent our lives catching everything especially if we've got kids because we're parents we mm. forgot immunologically for a little while while we weren't catching stuff how to fend off some of these common things because we weren't running into them so much so now we're on payback time as well because we're catching everything to make up for what we didn't have for two years so the whole world has actually been suffering a protracted phase of ill health and feeling yeah. pretty grim for the last uh, about six months or so but uh, hopefully this will slowly re-establish and then we'll get back to normal if anyone is wanting to boost their immunity, by the way, get yourself down to my daughter's creche, which is a veritable petri dish of various, various things and coughs and splutters. Uh, hi, Dr. Chris and SJ. Why do my eyes burn when raindrops go into them, says Keith? Hello, Keith. Well, they shouldn't do. Raindrops are fresh water. They have come through the air, of course. And so if you live in a particularly polluted area, if there's a lot of smog and vehicle pollution or dust is the other one, they can pick that up on their way down through the atmosphere, as well as if there are traces of acidic substances like oxides of sulphur in the atmosphere, it can make the rain a bit acid and that may irritate your eyes. So things brought in by the water, but fresh water in and of itself should not irritate your eyes considerably. Body pH, the level of acidity and alkalinity, is about 7.4, so just on the alkaline side of neutral. So if the water has come through the atmosphere, picked up some dirt, debris and some acidic substances, it will be off kilter to what your eyes are expecting, in inverted commas, and so therefore you might find that irritating. But on the whole, fresh water shouldn't cause soreness to your eyes. It should be absolutely fine. So I'd worry about what was in the rainwater if you're finding that it does make them sting. The other alternative is that you've had a hot day and you've got some sweat and salts and, and other things which are clinging to your eyelids and to your eyelashes and the raindrops wash those salty bits into your eyes and that can make things sting a bit. There we are. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thanks for your question, Keith. Uh, for Dr. Chris, my daughter had identical twin boys recently. Congratulations. How does it work that they, um, or all babies, were born with dark eyes and dark hair? Mm -mm. And now, almost six months, their hair is blonde and their eyes are getting lighter and bluer. Well, my son was blonde the minute he popped out. Um, and so, because the, the midwife said, Lovely. oh, we've got a blonde one here. Uh, it's certainly true that babies, as they mature... Various metabolic pathways kick in, switch on, turn off, turn on, mature and so on. And they do that at different times and different rates. As we develop inside our mums, different 
things are matured or turn on at different times and there tends to be a priority pecking order there are some things which are critical we get them finished it's a bit like when you have the builders around your house and there are some things you say look i can't move in here until there are some windows and doors in and and i need the drains working and the water that's critical but other stuff like getting the walls painted i can live with plaster on the wall for a while until you do the other stuff the body is no different it knows that you have to have a baby ready to come out at the right time with the critical things working other stuff can be finished afterwards and so various metabolic pathways various things that you don't need and not essential at the time of birth but can gear up later they tend to be deferred during development because when you have limited amounts of energy limited amounts of space to work with you prioritize the stuff that you know is going to be essential to making a viable baby that's going to be healthy once it's having to i can't say stand on its own two feet but you know what I mean, once it's outside mum and divorced from her metabolism. Because one of the things that babies do when they're cooking inside their mum is they are connected via the umbilical cord and the placenta to mum's bloodstream and therefore mum's metabolism. So anything the baby can't deal with itself, waste products and so on, it can just chuck into the mum's bloodstream like a giant rubbish tip and mum will deal with it. But once a baby's Mm. out, it has to start processing all of its own waste and making all of the things it needs itself. And so there, there is a slow maturation ready for the time of birth or just after birth of various different processes. And this includes things like the cells that give pigments to different body parts or change coloration and so on. Now, one, one other thing to consider is that some animals change their coloration and patterning as they grow older. And one theory is that when you pop out, you need to be fairly easy to hide and not stand out too much. And then as you get older, you can adopt your full colours, as it were. So some animals look very drab because they have to blend into the background. Maybe there's an element of that for a newborn to make it easier to hide and less obvious. And then you maybe if you are going to have a shock of blonde hair, you make that a bit more obvious as you you go through. But uh, I'd say that's just a theory. It's just speculation. I think really it's more kind of it's it's the process of development switching different things on and off at different times following a genetic program that that really determines what we look like and how we develop and at what time gosh we are we are weird and wonderful creatures aren't we uh we're sticking with the theme of colors in uh, in this voice note let's take a listen hi my question for the naked scientist is how do we know we're all seeing the same color so i have a friend that's I think he was colorblind towards red, but he could tell me I was wearing a maroon um, T-shirt. And I asked him how, and he said, well, he just knows to recognize if someone points at that color, it, it is maroon. So, so it got me thinking, I mean, how do we know we all just get pointed to a certain color and we say that's blue, that's green, that's white. How do we know we all are actually seeing the same thing? So when I look at blue, I don't see what to you looks like green for example thanks mm. hiding kept on the answer That's is mm, we don't. <laughs> no we don't uh, we are the product of immersive education in our family who point to something and say that's blue that's green that's red and as a result we all assume that the experience we individually have when we look at a blue thing or a red thing or a maroon thing in the case of the question is the same for everybody it's not it's the experience that's personal to us but we call that experience what other people have told us it it is and so i've no way of saying that when i look at something 
it makes the same visual impression on my brain and gives me the same perception and experience as you because I can't compare how you feel and how your brain is responding to things that I'm looking at. All we know is that we agree on what something looks like or is or feels like because we've all agreed that that's what that thing is when we've been growing up and our parents have taught us these things and our friends have said, feel this, it's nice and soft and then you turn that particular nerve sensation into a description of soft or spiky or sharp or hot or cold. But we don't know if the experience we have internally is the same for one person versus the other. We can guess that it probably is. And the reason we can guess that it probably is, is that anatomically, our brains are broken up into different areas that are specialised to do different jobs. And broadly speaking, if you compare one person's brain structure to another person's brain structure, they're pretty similar. The way the cells are organised, the way the cells, the nerve cells look, the way they're connected together are pretty similar which suggests that probably they do work the same way. When you subject people to psychological tests where you ask them to answer questions or pick things and so on, you can probe some of the ways in which the brain tends to process information and we tend to process the information similarly between one person and another, which suggests probably the experience is the same from one person to the next, but we don't know for sure and it's impossible to know without being able to plug into a person's brain and compare directly one person's experience to another which which we just can't do so we can only infer that it probably is very similar between us based on the evidence i've suggested but everyone's experience is unique it's so bizarre you you you, that question has sparked an awful lot of kind of philosophical um thoughts in in studio we're we're kind of doing a bit of a cogito ergo sum uh descartes well how do we even know if we exist then who's even really here uh type vibe thank you very much indeed for that question that has really got us all uh thinking and has blown our minds slightly uh morning dr smith and sj i watched a documentary on the world's most dangerous plants they mentioned a plant from australia called the gimpy gimpy uh this plant injects a venom that causes terrible pain that can last for days even months how and why did these plants develop this mechanism says Sully good question uh, I'm I'm not familiar with that particular plant so if anyone knows a bit more about it then do tell us about the gimpy gimpy plant but there are many plants which have evolved to impart pain and be be uncomfortable as a deterrent it's part of the- family Chris I've just I've just googled part of the nettle family I'm very familiar with those having fallen into them many times over my life especially as a young kid but um, also as an adult when clearing up bits of garden and so on why do plants do this well because plants are a raw source of energy and nutrition and they need to deter herbivory because everyone's trying to grab a slice of someone else's pie in nature and if you don't defend yourself then someone will come along and eat you given half a chance and so plants you mentioned the nettle family well that particular family they defend themselves by covering their leaves and stems stinging nettles in tiny spines made from silica sand effectively the glassy spines and they are hollow and they are laced with various chemicals which the plant puts inside like a tiny drinking straw and when you brush past them because they're brittle they penetrate through the skin break off irritate the skin directly but also they siphon into the skin by capillary action as they embed themselves some of those chemicals which are intensely irritant to your skin why do that 
because next time I see those plants, I'm not going to go near them. And there's quite good evidence. I was talking to the lady who runs the Botanic Gardens in Cambridge a few years ago, Beverly Glover. Uh, she's a plant scientist, and, and she said to me, in fields where there are grazing animals, stinging nettles naturally evolve to make themselves sting more and be better endowed with more spikes to make themselves stingier than in areas where there's less herbivory. So plants can respond to pressure from the environment by tooling up and, and arming themselves more. So this is really all about deterring other things from eating you. Now some plants do it with physical means, like a stinging nettle, which is a physical but also chemical. They also may grow thorns, like a rose or a bramble. And some plants do it chemically, purely chemically. The allium family, onions, garlic and so on, they produce chemicals based around sulphur in their flesh in their leaves and in their bulbs so that when you cut into them you mix enzymes together a bit like a binary poison where you mix two innocuous things together and they go off when they're in critical mass they go off into a chemical reaction that makes nasty substances and the idea is that animals that ate them would produce these nasty substances and go ouch i don't like that i'm not coming back for more of that same with chili the reason chili peppers we like them because we happen to tolerate the spiciness up to a point some animals find it extremely distasteful to get a mouthful of chili and mammals have particular receptors in their in their taste system that means that if they are encountering chili it will burn them whereas birds it doesn't affect them at all and um, you might say well hang on a minute why do mammals get burned by chili but a chicken can eat chili uh, no problem the reason is that mammals crunch up all the seeds to get the protein out birds have no teeth so they can't crunch up the seeds to get the protein out they come straight through and of course they're dispersed so in some cases we're using deterrence selectively against certain groups of animals to select in favor of others in order to promote our own survival so plants are a crafty bunch <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. Let's take a listen to this voice note. Good morning, Naked Scientist. Now, I would like to know why is it that when I am pressed for the loo, either to um, um, pee or to um, defecate, I cry. My eyes actually uh, tear up and I cry. So after I've used the bathroom, I look... Like I've just, like something's upset me. Thanks. Koser from Cape Town. Ooh. Well, I think probably the, the scientist's answer to this one, being sensitive to the, the, it's a mildly embarrassing question, isn't it? I think the reason yeah. is that when we go to the toilet, whether it's number one or number two, this is your autonomic or automatic nervous system controlling the process. Although you have voluntary control over the sphincter muscles, the muscles that hold things in, there's also an involuntary process. Anyone who's ever had bashful bladder syndrome, if you're a bloke, you know exactly what I mean. You end up in a line of urinals and you're just about to get started and someone comes and stands right next to you. Sometimes it can make getting started that bit harder. Why? Because we are embarrassed or we're worried about what might happen, or whatever. This is your automatic nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, which has control over coordinating the process of going to the loo. And in the case of having a wee, what's got to happen? Well, you've got to relax the external sphincter. You can control that. But behind the external sphincter, there is an internal involuntary sphincter that the automatic nervous system has control over and behind that is the muscle of the bladder itself which has to squeeze down and contract which you have 
much less control over. That's chiefly your automatic nervous system controlling that. So you've got to put all of those things together in, in play to make the we come out. But your automatic or autonomic nervous system also controls many other processes in the body, like heart rate, breathing rate, blood pressure, temperature, and, you've guessed it, saliva production and tear production. And it may well be that in some people there's a little bit of miswiring in the, in the system so that when you're sending a barrage of signals to say to your bladder, let's get started, or going to go now, or I absolutely have to hold the Wii in, I'm desperate but I have to hold it in until I'm sitting on the loo, under those circumstances sometimes a bit of spillover of nerve activity can, can affect other circuits that do similar sorts of jobs. And that can cause them to activate the things that they would normally do. So you get an inappropriate release or activity in other parts of the body. I would think that's probably the most likely explanation of what's going on here. I, that, that's marvellous. On that note, um, Chris, we have to leave it there. But this has been an absolute treat for me. I hope this won't be uh, the last time that I get to enjoy your company and your mind-boggling brain. Thank you very much. It's indeed. a pleasure. Uh, and I'm going to go go away and learn about the gimpy gimpy now, and uh, and I'll bring yeah, that back next us. week for a bit of homework. Please.